This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, David Chung from Orange County, California. David and I go way back all the way to middle school, and we even went to high school and college together. David has been a loyal listener to our podcast. His favorite president is Abraham Lincoln and believes that our 16th president's life story resonates with us, especially today. David notes that Lincoln served during a divisive time, the Civil War, where he faced the difficult issues of race and worked hard to unite the country. David believes that Lincoln's accomplishment in upholding the Union was all the more poignant given the personal tragedies that Lincoln endured during his life, especially losing a son while in the White House, and ultimately because he himself lost his life just at the moment of victory. Thanks, David, for all your support. And now, on to our episode. In our previous episode, we studied the rise of Dwight David Eisenhower from his humble beginnings in Kansas to becoming the most respected American of his time. We covered his service during World War II and his election as the 34th President of the United States. He was the second chief executive to preside during the Cold War, so we discussed his strategy to contain the Soviet Union, his belief that fiscal stability was the key to victory in the Cold War, and that the threat of massive retaliation and a willingness to engage in nuclear brinksmanship were the best ways to achieve that stability. How his strategy played out is the subject of this episode of This American President. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the subject of one of the most famous campaign slogans in American history. The slogan was, I like Ike. If you watch the actual clip, you'll see a cartoon of Eisenhower where he looks like a smiling old grandpa. And for many, that was how they saw him. If you look up photos of him, he's often smiling. And how could you not like Ike? How could you not like America's favorite grandpa? This image certainly helped him get elected president, but it reinforced a certain image of Eisenhower that he was a bit of an intellectual lightweight, that he was old and detached from the troubles of the world, that he was passive and ineffective. The fact that he loved golf and often played it didn't help. People wondered if he was more fit for a retirement center than the White House, especially during an era of nuclear weapons and international crises. And during the 1952 election, the Democrats attacked Ike for being an empty vessel. They loved his opponent, Adlai Stevenson, because of his intellect. But to them, Ike was just an old daughter. Since his cabinet was filled with wealthy businessmen, they claimed that he was just a puppet for Wall Street. I've always felt this criticism was unfair and a bit snobby. After all, Eisenhower was the man who led the greatest invasion in world history. The man who emerged as the most respected military figure of World War II. 
anyone who reaches the pinnacle of American military power during the world's worst conflict could not have been a lightweight. What many of Eisenhower's critics didn't realize was that this was likely part of a deliberate strategy. You see, Eisenhower had a great poker face, literally and figuratively. In fact, Eisenhower may have been the best president at poker. He had learned to play it when he was a kid from an older gentleman, a man named Bob Davis, who apparently was a mathematical genius. When Eisenhower was a young man, he got so good at poker that it actually supplemented his salary. He even bought his wife a dress from his poker earnings. At one point, Eisenhower had to stop playing because his fellow poker players resented how bad he would hustle them. I bring all this up because the genial, smiling Eisenhower we all know from the newsreels actually masked another Eisenhower, the cold, calculating strategist. Vice President Nixon, who was no stranger to hardball political tactics, said Eisenhower was, quote, far more complex and devious than most Americans realize. According to writer Evan Thomas, Eisenhower's own son said that his father could be, quote, cold-blooded. Oftentimes, perceptions are based on things on the surface. Eisenhower, to many, appeared to be a sweet, elderly figure. But that was part of the image he projected. It allowed him to remain aloof and above the fray, above the muck of politics. He may have paid for it, since it exposed him to accusations of being inactive and ineffective. But it served his purpose. It also had another effect on the American people. It made them feel safe. Eisenhower knew the people he was leading. He knew that they had gone through decades of depression and world wars. They had fought and bled in the Korean Wars. They were also in a brave new world of atomic warfare, and they had a long struggle ahead of them in the Cold War, one that seemed to be of indefinite duration. On the one hand, Americans were tired and needed a break. On the other hand, they had a long-term ideological conflict on their hands. Eisenhower knew that if these war-weary Americans were to sustain a long-term effort, they needed some time. They needed, to coin a previous president's campaign slogan, some normalcy. They needed to not be sent off fighting in wars. They needed to get married, move into nice homes, have kids, get good jobs, make some money, and enjoy life. And they also needed to feel safe and secure. Eisenhower was a military man. He knew how to lead in times of war. But he also knew how to lead in peace. He wanted to give Americans the chance to do those things and to live their lives. He wanted to give them a solid decade of peace and prosperity. And he wanted them to feel secure. That was what the grandpa image was all about. It was about being that safe, comforting presence for the American people. This warrior remade himself to be a man of peace. He cultivated peace and prosperity, making it a campaign promise to end the war in Korea and promote economic growth at home. And he gave Americans the perception that Grandpa would protect them from the dangers of the modern world, like nuclear weapons. It was a great act put on by the great poker player. He was also a leader in charge. Ike's national security advisor, Gordon Gray, wrote, quote, Eisenhower made all the vital decisions and firmly enforced them. His reliance on the staff system stopped at the deciding line, his grasp of complex issues was profound, and his exposition of his own views was forceful and clear. 
The architect of containment, George Kennan, said of Eisenhower, quote, he showed his intellectual ascendancy over every man in the room. It's said that there are two types of presidential management styles. One is the spokes on the wheel, where a president makes himself the hub of everything going on in the administration. He functions as his own chief of staff and manages everything directly. And the other is the delegation model. Well, Ike's was the delegation model. He made the final decisions, but he also empowered his subordinates to act. And he only wanted to see the most important things. Everything else should be decided at lower levels. To him, that was the most efficient way to run an organization. At the end of his presidency, he told John F. Kennedy, quote, No easy matters will ever come to you as president. If they are easy, they will be settled at a lower level. In our first episode on Eisenhower, I discussed how, for many, the 1950s seemed like an idyllic time. There is some truth to that, in that it was an era of relative peace and prosperity. But all this happened under the shadow of the Cold War, where both nations were racing to build more powerful nuclear weapons. When you study Eisenhower's presidency, you find that the recurring theme is crisis management. Year after year, crises would arise that would test Eisenhower's skills at brinksmanship and his goal of keeping the peace. One man who would be at his side during these crises was his new Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. Dulles came from a distinguished family. His grandfather, John Foster, had served as Secretary of State under President Benjamin Harrison, and his uncle, Robert Lansing, held the same position under President Wilson. Dulles had risen as a major foreign policy figure and was a foremost expert within Republican circles. As a devoutly religious man, he saw the Cold War in terms of a moral conflict between good, the United States, and evil, the Soviet Union, and was a major proponent of rolling back communism. The most immediate crisis was the Cold War. The war had developed into a bloody stalemate and a drain on America's resources. During the campaign, Ike had promised to go to Korea to obtain a lasting peace. It was a dramatic move for President-elect Eisenhower to go to the theater of war, Ending the Korean War fit with his new-look policy to find ways to reduce the conventional military budget. But Eisenhower was also willing to employ another aspect of new-look, the threat of nuclear weapons. Negotiations were stalled over the matter of Chinese and North Korean POWs. Many of them, under South Korean and American custody, did not want to go back to their home countries. In addition, South Korean President Syngman Rhee, America's ally, was not very helpful. He did not want a settlement with North Korea and still held hopes of unifying the country under his leadership. He threatened to expel American forces and he even released 25,000 North Korean POWs to sabotage the talks. This infuriated Eisenhower. Rhee thought that this would force Eisenhower's hand. But Ike was not one to cower to threats. He responded to Rhee's intransigence by threatening to abandon the South Koreans. This had the intended effect and got Ri back in line. The Chinese tried to renew their war effort in light of the stalemate in Korea. They had undertaken a massive offensive in May of 1953. This had the potential of spoiling Eisenhower's plan to end the war. So he decided to play a little game of brinksmanship to force a ceasefire. According to author Jim Newton, Eisenhower passed word to China that the United States was preparing to use nuclear weapons to end the war. 
We do know that Eisenhower had discussed in a February 1953 National Security Council meeting using tactical nuclear weapons to hit the Chinese troops in Kaesong. Also, a Joint Chiefs war plan produced in May of 1953 called for using tactical nuclear weapons if the war dragged on. Years later, in his memoirs, Eisenhower wrote, quote, At the truce negotiations in Panmajon, we dropped the word, discreetly, of our intentions. We felt quite sure it would reach Soviet and Chinese ears. It's hard to determine the impact of these threats. It's not like Mao wrote down the reasons he agreed to talks. But it appears to have had the effect that was intended. Mao seemed to have realized the futility of continuing the fighting. By July 1953, an armistice was signed. It wasn't a peace treaty, and the war, to this day, has never technically ended, despite recent efforts. But for all intents and purposes, it ended the fighting. Tonight we greet, with prayers of thanksgiving, the official news that an armistice was signed almost an hour ago in Korea. For this nation, the cost of repelling aggression has been high. In thousands of homes, it has been incalculable. It has been paid in terms of tragedy. With special feelings of sorrow and of solemn gratitude, we think of those who were called upon to lay down their lives in that far-off land to prove once again that only courage and sacrifice can keep freedom alive upon the earth. The Americans had lost about 34,000 men in combat in Korea. The Chinese were said to have lost over 100 to 400,000 in combat. Korean casualties on both sides, including civilians, total in the millions. Eisenhower later believed that his threat of nuclear war had convinced the Chinese to end the war. Whatever the truth is, Eisenhower could now say that he had honored his pledge. American boys were coming home. Peace had arrived for a war-weary nation, and the stage was now set for peace and prosperity in the 1950s. I mentioned the rollback aspects of Eisenhower's New Look policy, and how that included use of covert operations. While early in his presidency, he would employ these tactics in two countries. Both of these actions were relatively successful, but many of the facts remain shrouded in mystery and they also remain some of the most controversial aspects of Eisenhower's presidency. The first such action took place in Iran. A man named Mohammad Mazadeh became prime minister of Iran in 1951. He ran as a progressive and championed several social reforms, such as unemployment insurance and land reform. But he was most known for supporting the nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, The biggest issue was that the British rigged the system so that Iran would only get 10% of the profits. Many Britons knew that the Iranians had legitimate gripes and that their position was untenable. They hoped to negotiate a fair deal with the Iranians, but the oil company refused and forced the British government to boycott Iranian oil. American companies went along with the boycott, even though the whole situation smacked of British imperialism. It was clear to American policymakers the Iranians were getting a raw deal. Then-President Truman feared that this would push the Iranians away from the West and closer to the Soviet Union. He hoped to mediate the situation, but that went nowhere since both the British and the Iranians were at an impasse. The British approached Truman with the possibility of overthrowing Mossadegh, 
but he refused to involve America in the scheme. When Eisenhower took office, the British immediately worked to convince him that Mossadegh was leading Iran closer to the Soviets. Winston Churchill insisted that Mossadegh would be controlled by Iran's pro-Soviet Tuda party. Several members of Eisenhower's team, including the strongly anti-communist Vice President Richard Nixon, began favoring an intervention. Just a couple months into Eisenhower's presidency, the CIA was drafting plans to overthrow Mossadegh. It was called Operation Ajax, and it involved working with the Iranian monarch, the Shah, and employing a host of tactics like bribery, manipulation of the media, now known as fake news, and orchestrating quote-unquote spontaneous demonstrations. The plot worked. By August of 1953, Mossadegh, the head of a democratically elected government in Iran, had been removed from power. Now, power was mainly in the hands of the Shah, who was backed by American support. Mossadegh would spend the next three years in jail. He was then placed under house arrest until he died in 1967. Several of his officials were imprisoned or executed. Eisenhower believed that the entire operation was a quiet success. In his diary, the president acknowledged the coup, writing, quote, The things we did were covert. If knowledge of them became public, we would not only be embarrassed in that region, but our chances to do anything of like nature in the future would almost totally disappear. He hoped that, quote, we may really give a serious defeat to Russian intentions and plans in that area. To Eisenhower and to Cold Warriors, it was a major victory for the United States against communism. Since then, some historians have claimed that the entire affair stirred up a hornet's nest and provoked Iranian resentment against America. The Shah remained a strong ally of the United States, and his government instituted oppressive rule over the Iranian people. The people chafed under his rule, and believed that America was responsible for their condition. Also, the nature of American intervention led Iranians and others in the Middle East to see the United States as an imperialist meddler that merely supplanted the British as their oppressor. Many historians claim that Mossadegh had very little connection with the Soviets, which undermines the entire rationale of the coup. In July of 2009, the CIA released documents acknowledging its involvement in Iran in 1953. But there was another consequence to the coup. Its short-term success encouraged Eisenhower's penchant for covert action. He felt that if he could contain communism on the cheap with nuclear weapons, he could also roll them back on the cheap with the CIA. At least one commentator, Jim Newton, does bring up the possibility that the coup in Iran prevented any chance for oil-rich Iran to fall into the Soviet orbit. But others point out the cost of the coup in terms of international goodwill. Still others point out a lack of evidence that Mossadegh was a true communist. At almost the same time as Mossadegh was being deposed, Eisenhower approved the removal of another head of state, this time Guatemala's president, Jacobo Arbenz. In this case, Arbenz got into a dispute with the United Fruit Company, an American corporation that was represented by Secretary Dulles' law firm. Arbenz instituted the unionization of United Fruit, as well as land distribution. Since the company was a major landlord, it felt that Arbenz was targeting it and its interests. The company had enjoyed many years of success in Guatemala and had a sweet deal where it was exempt from taxes, but many Guatemalans felt that foreign businessmen were benefiting from the company 
while they themselves were being left in the cold. President Truman had actually considered taking action to overthrow Arbenz, but decided against it. When Eisenhower came into office, he became interested in the situation, when American intelligence, as well as his ambassador to Guatemala, John Purifoy, reported to him that Arben's government was teeming with communists. Ike wrote that, quote, As long as President Arben's remains in power, the Arben's Communist Alliance will probably continue to dominate Guatemalan politics. Eisenhower authorized the shipment of arms to Arben's enemies. In response, the Guatemalan president made a series of ill-advised moves. He suspended civil liberties and rounded up those suspected of treason. But what he did next sealed his fate. He reached out for connections behind the Soviet Iron Curtain for assistance. Soon, a ship from Poland was intercepted along with 200 tons of arms headed for Guatemala. Right after the coup was on, initiated by the CIA, Eisenhower authorized two American fighter jets to provide air support. On June 27, 1954, Arbenz resigned and fled the nation. In his place was an American-backed junta that reversed Arbenz's reforms and installed a military dictatorship. Left-wing resistance to this regime developed and led to the Guatemalan Civil War from 1960 to 1966. Just as in Iran, many historians consider the connection between the Soviets and the Guatemalans to be shaky at best, although there were strong leftist elements in the country with sympathy for communism. And it is true that the Soviets were promoting communist revolution abroad. To many cold warriors and those who opposed communism, Eisenhower's actions were justified as hardball tactics to stop a ruthless ideology. And whether or not Mosaddegh or Arbenz had close Soviet ties is immaterial. But detractors point out that those moves fostered resentment among the Iranians and those in Latin America. They argue that while the New Look policy was designed to roll back the Soviet Union on the cheap, the United States would incur long-term costs that it had yet to foresee. And they also argue that America was violating the sovereignty of other nations, which was especially unsavory, since in the case of Guatemala, it involved corporate interests, including those tied to Secretary Dulles. Personally, I do think it's important to remember who the United States was dealing with. In the Soviet Union... America was dealing with a ruthless regime that was oppressing millions of people and seeking to expand abroad. And with an ideology that was based on class, not the fundamental rules of nation-states, it had little respect for international norms. This was the assessment of the Soviet Union that both Democrats and Republicans agreed upon. Whether or not one agrees with Eisenhower's actions here, it's hard to imagine containing such an aggressive ideology without having to make tough decisions like these, where it seemed necessary to preempt the Soviets from gaining any followers in the Third World. These are the difficult choices that a superpower leading the free world must confront that many other countries don't have to face. And while the regimes installed by the United States were authoritarian, it is rarely asked what would have happened if socialist regimes, even if they were democratically elected, persisted in those countries. Perhaps such regimes would have devolved into socialist dictatorships with stagnating economies, leaving them far worse off. Of course, all these points will continue to be debated. I said earlier that Eisenhower's presidency was one of crises, that the popular image of the 1950s of I Love Lucy and Leave it to Beaver 
actually belies the dangers that it faced. Dangers that always involved the threat of nuclear war. Well, two crises would erupt in 1954 and 55 that would test Eisenhower's resolve and his new-look policy. In Southeast Asia, the French were waging war in Vietnam, one of its colonies, to suppress an independence movement. But it faced stiff resistance led by communist leader Ho Chi Minh. Ho's efforts were aided, in varying degrees, by the Soviets and the Chinese. By the spring of 1954, the French and the Vietnamese were fighting in the city of Dien Bien Phu. Dulles advised Eisenhower to increase support for the French, which he did. By the end of the year, the United States had supplied 300,000 small arms and spent $1 billion to support the French, 80% of the total cost of the war. America was basically underwriting France's war in Indochina. Many of Eisenhower's advisors believed that the domino theory was at work here. If communists got a foothold in Vietnam, then the whole region would as well. Eisenhower believed this himself, but he also was leery about American involvement for two reasons. First, he felt it put the U.S. in the position of defending colonialism. He reportedly said that it was all a part of a, quote, frantic desire of the French to remain a world power. Eisenhower knew that this was not a good look and could alienate the third world away from the West and towards the Soviets. Second, he didn't think that the war could be won. The French were having trouble against the Vietnamese, who had the advantage of fighting at home in tropical jungles. The man who led the invasion of Normandy during World War II knew that this would be a nightmare of a place to fight. He hesitated to commit Americans to a conflict without a clear path to victory. In his words, quote, I had no intention of using United States forces in any limited action when the force employed would probably not be decisive effectively. The French suffered a devastating defeat at Dien Bien Phu in March 1954. Soon after, France left Vietnam, which became independent. It also partitioned between the communists in the north and the anti-communists in the south. There was now even greater pressure on Eisenhower to prevent a communist foothold in North Vietnam. Remember, less than five years earlier, in 1949, China had fallen. And four years earlier, in 1950, the communists had invaded Korea. There was this real fear that communism was really spreading, and that, if not stopped, it could continue to spread like a cancer around the world. The military drafted contingency plans that may have included the use of tactical nuclear weapons, which would have been consistent with the New Look policy. Members of Congress, Eisenhower's own cabinet, and French diplomats were clamoring for action to remove communist forces in Vietnam, and Vice President Nixon suggested that American boots on the ground might be necessary. Like any president in the Cold War, there was pressure to not be soft on communism. But Eisenhower was supremely confident in his own abilities. He would not bow to that pressure. He knew that even in a zero-sum competition between the superpowers, you had to pick and choose your battles wisely. And wasn't that what the New Look policy was all about? Wasn't it about offsetting Soviet power, not by confronting its areas of strength, but countering where it was weak? At a national security meeting in April 29, 1954, Eisenhower announced his decision. He refused to escalate America's involvement in the region, especially when it came to ground forces. In doing so, Eisenhower made a fateful decision. 
He avoided consuming his presidency with the same conflict that ruined Lyndon Johnson's presidency a decade and a half later. It is likely that it preserved his reputation among future historians, especially as they studied the costs that America incurred from the Vietnam War. And again, it was an example of Eisenhower's New Look policy, departing from Truman's perimeter defense and refusing to intervene or rely on ground troops whenever the communists made gains. But as stated earlier, the New Look policy did call for other measures of deterrence. Eisenhower didn't fully disengage diplomatically from Southeast Asia. He affirmed America's support for the South Vietnamese regime under No Din Diem, despite Diem's penchant for authoritarianism. Also under Eisenhower, the CIA engaged in a propaganda campaign that spread misinformation against the communists and falsely threatened that America was considering nukes in Vietnam. Again, the New Look strategy of reliance on the threat of the nuclear option. Although Eisenhower wisely dodged a bullet in Vietnam, it was a difficult situation that would not be resolved during his administration. A second big crisis of 1954 and 55 also happened in Asia, this time in the Taiwan Strait. When Mao took over mainland China in 1949, his archenemy, Chiang Kai-shek, and his nationalists fled and established a new regime in Taiwan, or Formosa as some called it, an island a little over 100 miles off the mainland coast. Since then, things remained tense in the Taiwan Strait. Both sides claimed to be the true China. The mainland Chinese government claimed Taiwan was a rebel province that belonged to them. The government in Taiwan under Chiang held out hope of invading the mainland and restoring its rule there. To hold the line against the communist Chinese, then-President Truman sent the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet into the strait, effectively placing Taiwan under American protection. Now that the fighting in the Korean War had ended, communist China could now focus again on reclaiming Taiwan. Truman thought that Chiang's dream of re-establishing nationalist rule on the mainland was delusional and refused to support his plans for an invasion. Anti-communists in the United States felt Truman was to blame for letting China fall and criticized him for preventing Chiang from mounting his invasion. When Eisenhower took office, he signaled a reversal in Truman's policy, that the United States wouldn't restrain Chiang from taking over the mainland. The nationalists began increasing its military presence to over 70,000 troops on two disputed islands, named Kimoi and Matsu, right next to the mainland coast. Not surprisingly, this provoked the mainland to begin shelling the islands in the fall of 1954 and declare that Taiwan must be liberated. America warned the People's Republic of China to cease attacking Taiwan, but Eisenhower knew he had to do something to deter the Chinese. So his administration forged a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan in December of 1954, which was quickly ratified by the U.S. Senate. It codified America's protection of Taiwan. But Eisenhower was shrewd. He knew that such treaties were often binding on parties to the point of inflexibility and could embroil one of the parties in a conflict against its interest. So he ensured that the agreement did not obligate America to act if Kimoy and Matsu were attacked. This gave America flexibility during crises on the Taiwan Strait, so it wouldn't automatically have to respond militarily on Taiwan's behalf, and therefore find itself involved in a war with China. The treaty also limited Taiwan's freedom of action, 
basically giving America veto power on any actions Chiang might take to invade the mainland. It was generally consistent with the New Look policy, using alliances to deter a communist foe, and it also preserved breathing space for the United States, a space that Eisenhower the Brinksman could exploit during crises. It also allowed a certain level of unpredictability in American policy, keeping the mainland Chinese guessing as to whether the U.S. would back up Taiwan with force. But Eisenhower couldn't avoid a confrontation. On January 18, 1955, the mainland escalated the situation by sending in the People's Liberation Army and seizing the Yijiangshan Islands. This forced the Taiwanese to evacuate nearby islands. Shelling along Matsu and Kimoi continued. Eisenhower knew that American credibility was on the line now that Taiwan was under attack. He was willing to go to the brink to defend American credibility. He got the United States Congress to approve the Formosa Resolution, which gave Eisenhower the power to use American forces to defend Taiwan. The American military drew up plans to escalate its involvement, including the use of ground troops. And here, President Eisenhower reverted back to the New Look policy's reliance on the threat of nuclear weapons. Just as in the Korean War, when he leaked to the Chinese that he was considering atomic warfare, the president engaged in brinksmanship and tough talk. At a press conference, he signaled that nukes were an option if things in East Asia got out of hand. Most people felt that the bomb was a special weapon that couldn't be employed or even considered in the same way conventional weapons were considered. On March 1955, Eisenhower publicly rejected this, saying, quote, In any combat where things can be used on strictly military targets and for strictly military purposes, I see no reason why they shouldn't be used just exactly as you would use a bullet or anything else. Secretary of State Dulles publicly affirmed the administration was considering atomic warfare. On April 23, 1955, Mao's government announced that it was willing to talk to end the crisis. It stopped shelling the islands about a week later. The crisis began to abate. Now again, historians debate just why Mao went back to the table. Eisenhower's supporters credit his willingness to threaten nuclear war in deterring the Chinese. Others claim that Eisenhower's threats had nothing to do with Mao's backing down. Some of his critics even claim that Eisenhower fell right into Mao's trap, that Mao goaded Eisenhower into making nuclear threats so that it would alienate American allies. What's interesting is that there is some evidence that Eisenhower was bluffing, at least when it came to ground forces. As the military drew up plans to send ground troops to defend Taiwan, Eisenhower told his Joint Chiefs Chairman, quote, I have no intention of putting American foot soldiers on Kimoi. A division of soldiers would not make any difference. Whether he was bluffing regarding the use of nuclear weapons, we don't know. It's hard to determine the impact of Eisenhower's actions, but it does reveal that he and Dulles were, indeed, willing to go to the edge. Contrary to the image of Eisenhower as a passive president, he comes across as a leader of great confidence, willing to make gambles when the stakes were at their highest. And it's hard to argue with results. Mao did ultimately back down, and America affirmed its commitment to Taiwan. Still, if the president's critics could concede that he was a man in charge, they still were very concerned that he was willing to gamble with the most destructive weapon ever invented.
The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Now, earlier, I discussed Eisenhower's proposals to reduce the number of nuclear weapons or to use nuclear technology for peaceful purposes. And it's a good reminder that although he was willing to use bombs for deterrence, he also wanted to find a way to reduce the cost of the arms race or even improve relations with the Soviet Union. And an opportunity came up to do just that. In past episodes, we covered FDR at the Yalta Conference and Truman at the Potsdam Conference. Well, Eisenhower had his own conference, this time in Geneva, in July of 1955. This conference didn't just include the United States and the Soviet Union. It was a four-power conference that also included Britain and France. Although Eisenhower was skeptical about what the conference could achieve, the British had insisted on it. They hoped that in an era of nuclear saber-rattling, a summit could help lessen tensions. Now, at the conference... Eisenhower got his first good look at Soviet leadership in the post-Stalin era. Two years after Stalin's death, it still wasn't clear who was truly in charge. The Soviets came as a committee, which included Vyacheslav Molotov, Georgi Zhukov, Andrei Gromyko, Nikolai Bolganin, and Nikita Khrushchev. After meeting with Soviet leaders, Eisenhower sensed that it was Khrushchev who was emerging as the true Soviet leader. Now, nothing happened at Geneva as earth-shattering as what happened at Yalta with FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. But Eisenhower and Dulles did come up with an interesting proposal that he hoped would ease tensions. They unveiled the Open Skies Initiative. Basically, the idea was that the major world powers, including the United States and the Soviet Union, would open up their airspace to aerial surveillance by other countries. It was a pretty daring proposal— basically a mutual exercise of vulnerability that would go a long way to build trust. It was hoped that open skies would prevent nations from building up and stockpiling weapons of mass destruction. Perhaps this might one day culminate in a worldwide disarmament treaty. Few expected the conference would resolve all the issues of the Cold War, but open skies could be a first step. It also had the benefit of making the United States appear as the party earnestly in search for peace and cooperation, while putting the pressure on the Soviets to do the same. In reality, the agreement would have been a bigger concession by the Soviets. While both sides had secrets, the Soviets were far more closed off. It would have been a bigger sacrifice for them to be that transparent. 
president, in an effort to break the deadlock, made a precedent-shattering proposal, offering to submit a blueprint of America's entire military establishment to Russia with permission to make authenticating aerial photographs if Russia would do the same. The high point of the conference to date, Ike's action followed an earlier informal incident, which in its way did as much to prove his sincerity and goodwill. Just doing what comes naturally, a habit rare among the world's statesmen, Ike ducked into a toy shop to buy presents for his grandchildren, incidentally leaving his startled Secret Service bodyguard behind. The true diplomacy of international friendship in action. Although Britain and France were interested in open skies, Khrushchev opposed it. At one point, Khrushchev bluntly asked Eisenhower, quote, Who are you trying to fool? To the president, this was a major disappointment. He bitterly said that, quote, Khrushchev does not want peace, save on his own terms, and in ways that will aggrandize his own power. He is blinded by his dedication to the Marxist theory of world revolution and communist domination. He cares nothing for the future happiness of the peoples of the world. 1956 was the last year of Eisenhower's first term. By then, Eisenhower was 65 years old, among the oldest men to serve as president. 1956 was also an election year, and there was question about whether Eisenhower would run again, especially considering his age. Things were going well. The country was at peace and the economy was booming, as Eisenhower had hoped. Throughout his first term, his approval ratings generally hovered around 70%. Although it was a time of peace, the crises of the Cold War continued. Changes were brewing inside the Soviet Union. First, in February, Nikita Khrushchev gave a speech that would send shockwaves around the world. In front of the 20th Congress of the Soviet Communist Party, Khrushchev attacked the late dictator Joseph Stalin. He attacked the cult of personality that Stalin had created and the atrocities he had committed. The audience was stunned by the attack. There are reports that some watching the speech suffered heart attacks or committed suicide right afterwards. Now, that might seem a bit crazy to us, but imagine if Kim Jong-un got up today in front of the entire North Korean Communist Party and started bashing his father, Kim Jong-il, or his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. It was basically the equivalent of telling his society that everything they'd been taught their whole lives was a lie. In the West, the speech immediately raised hopes that things might be changing in the Soviet Union. American commentators wondered if Eisenhower's resolve in the face of communist aggression was convincing the Soviets that they had to change course. But like many historic events, the speech had an unintended consequence. Within the Soviet Union's sphere of influence, one country saw it as a signal that Moscow was softening. Hungarian nationalists, dissatisfied with Soviet rule, began to rise up in defiance. Students were forming unions, protesters were organizing and demanding political freedoms. By the fall, the revolt was spreading nationwide. Whatever hopes there were for a kinder, gentler Soviet Union, they were dashed on November 4th when Moscow sent in over a thousand tanks and over 30,000 troops to crush the movement. Soon, tens of thousands of Hungarians were imprisoned, executed, and deported. About 200,000 fled the country the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 was completely squashed. Some in the United States and around the world called on Eisenhower to respond in some way to assist the Hungarians in their fight against Soviet oppression. In fact, Radio Free Europe, the American-funded broadcast organization, had actually called for the Hungarians to fight the Soviets, 
and provided advice on resistance. Some blamed the United States for inciting the revolt. Eisenhower, reportedly, did not know about what Radio Free Europe was doing. Either way, he wouldn't get the United States involved behind the Iron Curtain. To do so, in his eyes, could provoke a conflict between America and the Soviets. Remember, the New Look strategy called for rejecting the perimeter defense strategy under Truman. Hungary was too far into the Soviet orbit for America to act. Eisenhower wrote to Soviet leader Bulganin, quote, I urge in the name of humanity and in the cause of peace that the Soviet Union take action to withdraw Soviet forces from Hungary immediately. Other than this, there was little he felt he could do. Part of New Look was to avoid areas of Soviet strength and challenge them instead in points of weaknesses. Eisenhower knew that the Soviets were in a position of strength in Hungary. At pretty much the same time as the events in Hungary, another crisis was flaring up in the Middle East. Back in 1954, a charismatic military leader named Gamal Abdel Nasser took power in Egypt. He was highly ambitious and an avowed enemy of Western imperialism. For decades, the British had a presence in the Suez Canal, and Nasser wanted them out. He was also antagonistic towards Israel. He began a major building project, the Aswan High Dam in southern Egypt. President Eisenhower sensed an opportunity to develop relationships within the Middle East, perhaps preempting any Soviet attempts to establish influence there. He shrewdly offered Nasser loans for building the dam, but he did so on the condition that Nasser not take any financial aid from the Soviet Union. Nasser felt insulted by this condition. He felt that the United States was just another imperialist power. In response, Nasser established relations with the People's Republic of China and began exchanging arms with Soviet-controlled Czechoslovakia. Eisenhower was enraged by Nasser's move closer to the communist world and withdrew his offer. In response, Nasser seized the Suez Canal, which was run by the British and the French. That way, he could collect the shipping fees through the canal to pay for the Aswan Dam. Nasser then used the opportunity to threaten Israel. He amassed his forces at the border with Israel. Eisenhower now saw that Nasser's actions were provoking a possible conflict within the region, involving Britain, France, and Israel. And now that the Soviets were supplying Nasser, he feared that any action could bring in the Soviet Union, potentially leading to a conflict between the two nuclear superpowers. So the president reached out to the leaders involved, including the Israeli prime minister, to stand down. But on October 29th, Israel invaded the Egyptian Sinai. On November 5th, one day after tanks rolled into Hungary, British and French paratroopers landed at the Suez Canal. The Europeans proposed a ceasefire while they solidified their control of the canal. It was becoming clear that the British and French had hatched out the entire scheme with the Israelis to ensure control of the dam. Eisenhower was furious that his allies, the British and the French, allies he had worked with going back to World War II, had planned the invasion basically behind his back. And beyond this, we are forced to doubt that resort to force and war will for long serve the permanent interests of the attacking nations. Now, we must look to the future. In the circumstances I have described, there will be no United States involvement in these present hostilities. I therefore have no plan to call the Congress in special session. 
Of course, we shall continue to keep in contact with congressional leaders of both parties. At the same time, it is, and it will remain, the dedicated purpose of your government to do all in its power to localize the fighting and to end the conflict. Despite his anger, he sought a measured response. In a move unexpected by many in the Middle East, Eisenhower demanded that the British and the French end their intervention and return the canal to Egypt. When the European powers tried to stay, Eisenhower showed he meant business by selling the American government's pound sterling bonds, which threatened to negatively affect the British economy. For their part, the Soviets, under Khrushchev, threatened to attack Britain and France if they didn't withdraw. Eisenhower also warned the Soviets not to escalate the situation, saying, quote, If the Soviets should attack Britain and France directly, we would, of course, be in a major war. Eisenhower then worked the phones, calling British Prime Minister Anthony Eden, and personally convinced him to withdraw his forces. Faced by a military threat from the Soviets and an economic threat from its ally, the United States, Britain and France finally complied. The crisis soon abated, and Egypt took control of the canal again. It was a major humiliation for Britain and France. Some believed that it spelled the end of Britain's status as a world power. Their scheme had been exposed, and their most important ally had abandoned them. British Prime Minister Anthony Eden soon resigned. It was a crisis that Eisenhower had skillfully managed and in measured tones. He knew that supporting the British and the French plot would have placed America squarely on the side of European imperialism. For Eisenhower, these alliances took a back seat to the greater goal of international security. He was also able to get all of the various players to back down from the brink of escalation. He also hoped that this could restore goodwill among Arab nations, many of which, with their oil wealth, were major players in the global economy. This entire crisis happened, by the way, in the run-up and during the 1956 presidential election. It was a miserably stressful time for Eisenhower and his administration, as the Hungarian Revolution and the Suez Crisis were occurring at the end of a presidential campaign. Even worse, Dulles had just been diagnosed with cancer and had to have surgery on his intestine. Still, Eisenhower was a veteran of crisis situations going back to World War II and remained unflappable. In the words of one aide, quote, Here were the ten most frustrating days of his life, and yet there was no evidence at all of pressure, of indecision, or of the frustration he mentioned. Actually, he seemed completely composed. On November 6, 1956, one day after the British and French had entered the Sinai and two days after the Soviets entered Hungary, Eisenhower was re-elected in a landslide over, once again, Adlai Stevenson. His margin of victory was even greater, and he had won 41 out of 48 states. It's possible that Eisenhower sided with Egypt during the Suez Crisis, in part because of fear that siding with the European colonial powers would alienate the Arab world and push them and their oil interests closer to the Soviets. But the Soviet threat to intervene may have led Eisenhower to not support the European powers as well. The Suez Crisis was a sign that Europe's influence over the world was ending. Although America was an ally, it would not always defend Europe's attempts to maintain its interests in places like the Middle East. But this left another problem. If Europe left the Middle East, where it had been dominant for a long time, who would take its place? Without it, 
there was a vacuum that might be filled by the Soviets. To answer this question, Eisenhower and Dulles crafted what would be known as the Eisenhower Doctrine. In a message to Congress in January 1957, Eisenhower announced the Mideast countries could request American economic assistance or American military forces if they were being threatened by armed aggression. He specifically named international communism as the major threat, saying he was willing to use the, quote, armed forces of the United States to secure and protect the territorial integrity and political independence of such nations, requesting such aid against overt armed aggression from any nation controlled by international communism. Basically, Eisenhower was saying that America considered the Middle East a major theater in the Cold War and that he would be willing to intervene to protect it from falling under Soviet influence. Again, to some, especially Nasser, it smacked of American imperialism. But Eisenhower had ensured that it would apply only when American aid was requested by a Middle East country. In some ways, it echoed Nulik policy, strengthening America's relationships with allies to deter Soviet aggression. But it was also a tweaking of that policy, in that Eisenhower was specifying a region in the world where he was willing to use military force. At any rate, Eisenhower was beginning his second term. For anyone who studies presidencies, second terms are usually pretty rough and miserable, even for those considered great presidents. Eisenhower's was no different. Crises would continue to challenge the delicate balance of peace. And they were the types of crises that seemed to confirm what his critics believed, that he was a passive president who didn't fully exploit his power to make greater use of America's potential. On October 4, 1957, mankind made a giant leap into the future. A small metal sphere, just about the size of a beach ball, was launched into space and achieved low Earth orbit. It traveled around the Earth at 18,000 miles per hour, taking about 96 minutes to complete an orbit. It was the first time mankind had successfully placed an object into orbit. Almost anyone on Earth with a shortwave receiver could detect its radio signals. The problem for the United States and Eisenhower was that Sputnik, as it was called, was a Soviet achievement. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this Earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Now, Eisenhower originally didn't think much of it. In fact, he was aware that the Soviets were making progress on their space program from the intelligence community. He had hoped that the new satellite might actually be a way to promote his Open Skies initiative, his plan for the major powers to leave their military sites open to inspection. In his eyes, Sputnik was a milestone of little practical effect compared to the day-to-day dynamics of the Cold War. After all, the United States was far and away ahead of the Soviet Union in nuclear weapons in numerical superiority over the Soviets. In fact, according to Robert Norris and Hans Christensen, two nuclear history scholars, the United States had more than 10 times the number of nuclear weapons in 1955 than the Soviets. But Eisenhower didn't realize the impact it would have on the American people. He said that it was just, quote, one small ball in the air. 
It seemed to undermine the narrative, though, that Western freedom and capitalism was the superior way of life. If American technology was so great and communism so evil and impractical, how the heck did the Soviets beat us into space? And it also gave Americans a sense of vulnerability. If the Soviets could send a satellite into orbit, it wouldn't be long before they could send a nuclear warhead as well. And if the Soviets could do that, was anywhere safe? Of course, much of this was perception. It must have seemed silly to Eisenhower. His administration was stockpiling massive amounts of nuclear weapons. His administration was increasing the total number of nuclear weapons from a few hundred to several tens of thousands. He felt it was ridiculous to think that the Soviets were ahead of the United States in terms of nuclear capability or geopolitical strength. His intelligence was telling him that the United States was ahead in those areas. The American economy was still far and away the best in the world. But perception fueled so much of the Cold War, and it did so here. Things got worse for the United States, at least from a public relations perspective. Less than a month after Sputnik, the Soviets successfully sent a dog named Leica into space, the satellite this time being named Mutnik. See what they did there? I'm sorry to say that Leica died of overheating during the mission, and her remains disintegrated when her capsule re-entered the atmosphere a few months later. When the Americans launched a Vanguard rocket in December in response, it ended in disaster. The rocket exploded shortly after liftoff, an embarrassment for the United States. The press came up with an array of nicknames for the failure. Flopnik, Kaputnik, Oopsnik, and Stayputnik. The Americans did end up successfully launching a satellite a month and a half later, in January 1958. But the American people were demanding further action. The whole world was watching, and many began believing that Soviet technology, not American technology, was the wave of the future. Democrats attacked the Eisenhower administration for being asleep at the wheel. Again, it confirmed their view that Eisenhower was a do-nothing president. Eisenhower finally accepted, for appearance sake, that he had to at least look like he was doing something. In February 1958, he created the Advanced Research Projects Agency, now known as the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, one of the U.S. government's top technological research agencies. By April 1958, he proposed the creation of NASA and signed it into law by July. But per his New Look policy of keeping down defense spending, Eisenhower remained leery of overreacting to Sputnik. He said that we should, quote, neither become panicked nor allow ourselves to be complacent. He especially feared creating massive bureaucracies and busting the budget. Later, after his successor, John F. Kennedy, announced his goal for America to land a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s, Eisenhower reportedly said, quote, Anyone who would spend $40 billion in a race to the moon for national prestige is nuts. In Eisenhower's eyes, fiscal responsibility was a national security imperative, and Sputnik, no matter how much panic it caused, was not going to change that. Ever since Eisenhower created his New Look policy with its reliance on nuclear weapons, many in academia, and even in his own administration, began voicing concern about the strategy. They began to wonder whether we should adopt a more flexible policy. Once again, they argued that relying on massive retaliation and nuclear weapons was impractical. 
that it led us either to go to the brink during every crisis and risk going to war or lose credibility. They called for reducing our reliance on nuclear weapons. Some of these critics included a rising star in academia, Henry Kissinger, Even Secretary Dulles and Eisenhower's own national security advisor, Robert Cutler, began arguing for a new doctrine, that of flexible response, where the president would be able to have a wider range of options, including conventional forces, all the way up to nuclear weapons. This would require building up America's conventional defenses. They argued that this was a far more credible policy, and one that was more proportional, that you could threaten to use conventional weapons with more credibility. Eisenhower knew what this meant. It meant boosting the defense budget, building more tanks, ships, and planes, and building a better army. In November of 1957, the President's Science Advisory Committee released a report named the Geither Report that advocated for flexible response and a massive increase in the defense budget. It was presented to Eisenhower after the Sputnik launch. Despite the intense political pressure on the president to move to flexible response and boost the budget, especially in the wake of the Sputnik incident, he refused. He never budged on the New Look policy and the doctrine of massive retaliation, arguing that less reliance on nuclear weapons could make wars, even small wars, more likely. It's how America got bogged down in places like Korea. He felt that having more options to employ conventional forces would be more tempting to American policymakers, that putting nuclear war on the table was a far better deterrent. Eisenhower had staked his hopes for peace in the New Look policy and was not about to change course. Now, things in the Middle East had calmed down since the Suez crisis, but Nasser was still in charge in Egypt and was an ambitious man. And those ambitions would give Eisenhower an opportunity to implement the new Eisenhower Doctrine. By early 1958, Nasser had established an alliance with Syria to create what was called the United Arab Republic. In doing so, he hoped to solidify his position as the leader of Arab nationalism. Not everyone was happy about that. To many Middle East leaders, Arab nationalism was a threat to the stability of their regimes. And those concerns reached fever pitch when Arab nationalists initiated a coup in Iraq, which removed and executed the royal family. Eisenhower was alarmed by the situation and feared the Soviets might be able to exploit the instability. Lebanon's president, Camille Shamoun, began facing nationalist agitation at home. This led to tensions between Muslims and Maronite Christians within his country. Per the Eisenhower Doctrine, he requested American troops to restore order. Now Eisenhower, who had dedicated his presidency to peace, was faced with the decision to send American troops to a foreign land. He had ended the war in Korea and refused to commit forces into Indochina and Hungary. But unlike those situations, Eisenhower saw a clear mission and a pathway for success in Lebanon. On July 14, 1958, Eisenhower approved the request. The next day, the first batch of Marines landed in Lebanon in what was called Operation Blue Bat. Soon, 14,000 total soldiers were deployed. Within months, order was restored in Lebanon and peaceful elections were held by the end of the month. A new president was elected and Shamon stepped down from power. By the end of October, less than four months after they arrived, American forces left. Just one American soldier was killed, and not one civilian died at the hands of the Americans. 
It was a success for the Eisenhower Doctrine and a demonstration of how an experienced military leader executes a military operation in the Cold War. The Soviets attacked the operation as yet another example of American meddling, but this was undermined by the fact that the Lebanese government had invited the Americans in. Also, Soviet inaction caused Nasser to think twice about whether Moscow really had his back. The entire operation had Eisenhower's fingerprints all over it, a willingness to take risks, low costs, and a relatively light military footprint. But the international crises never stopped for Eisenhower. Remember the crisis in the Taiwan Strait back in 1954 and 55? Well, by 1958, things were heating up again. By July of 1958, the communist Chinese were building up forces near Kimoy and Matsu once again. They were responding to Chiang's militarization of the islands. Things reached crisis level when Mao's government shot down two Taiwanese military planes. On April 23, 1958, the mainland began bombarding the two islands. The fire was intense. 5,000 Taiwanese were either killed or wounded. Chiang Kai-shek began begging Eisenhower to come to his aid. Again, the question was whether and how America would respond to defend these two islands. Would Eisenhower again threaten to use nuclear weapons? If you remember the mutual defense pact signed a couple of years earlier between America and Taiwan, the pact explicitly left out mention of Kimoy and Matsu. America was not obligated by the treaty to respond if those islands were attacked. It also gave America a veto over whether Chang could act. Eisenhower responded with tough talk, saying, quote, If the Chinese communists attack Taiwan, we have got to do what is necessary. All out war. Soon the Joint Chiefs were drafting a plan to launch nuclear strikes on China if they blockaded the islands. Again, this belied the image of Eisenhower as a benign grandpa. Per the New Look policy, Eisenhower was signaling his willingness to use nuclear weapons and hoped it would get Mao to back down. Some historians have speculated what Mao and Chang's motives were. Some say that Chang provoked the crisis to get America to attack the Chinese to do his work for him. Others say that Mao provoked the crisis to get America to overreact again in an effort to undermine its standing in the world. Again, it's hard to say. But despite Eisenhower's tough talk, his resort to brinksmanship, he worked behind the scenes for a way out. First, he barred Chang from acting against the mainland. This infuriated Chang, but there wasn't much he could do. Eisenhower held firm. He also refused to give the military permission to actually use tactical nuclear weapons against China. Then he announced a willingness to make a deal with China. If China would stop shelling the islands and renounce an invasion, he would get Taiwan to demilitarize the islands. Whatever the original motives for the conflict, the Chinese agreed to talk by September. By October 6th, Mao's government ceased the bombing. Although it started shelling every other day after that, eventually the attacks died down. Taiwan reluctantly agreed to reduce its presence on the two islands. The crisis had passed. Just in the previous situation in the Taiwan Strait, Eisenhower had employed the threat of nuclear weapons. And while it is difficult to know exactly what the impact was, again, it's hard to argue with results. Once again, Mao backed down and disaster was averted. And once again, Eisenhower demonstrated his willingness to go to the distance to get what he wanted. Still, not everyone was so enamored with the president's leadership. 
A young, up-and-coming Democratic senator named John F. Kennedy criticized the president for not offering clear leadership during the crisis. Indeed, we have a commitment to defend these islands, which we must honor or lose face. The American people would like to know when such a commitment was made, why it was made, and by whom, and whether the Congress and the Allies were consulted. These offshore islands, about as far from the mainland as Oakland from San Francisco, are extremely difficult to defend. The question is, are they defensible? without launching a full-scale attack upon the Chinese mainland and threatening the peace of the entire world. This is what the American people have been asking, and the president did not give us the answer to this question last Thursday night. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Now, there were several things that happened during Eisenhower's last couple of years in office. Secretary of State Dulles's health declined. His cancer had spread. And on May 1959, he died. Just a few months later, Ike's old mentor, George Marshall, died as well. In a short period of time, Eisenhower had lost the two men that perhaps did more to shape his military and presidential careers. Also, a communist regime took over in Cuba led by Fidel Castro. He soon began befriending many of America's communist enemies and imposing a dictatorship on the island. Some of Eisenhower's critics felt that he had allowed the communists to get a foothold on the island, a dangerous situation considering Cuba was so close to American shores. But there was one specific instance that defined those last couple of years. Now, another Four Powers Summit was being planned for Paris in May of 1960, As you will recall, a previous one was held in Geneva in 1955, where Eisenhower proposed his Open Skies Initiative, which was rejected by the Soviets. Well, Eisenhower decided to give another summit a chance. Again, the British, French, and Soviets would be attending. Since Eisenhower was near the end of his presidency, he was in legacy mode. He was working with the British to forge a treaty banning nuclear tests, and hoped Khrushchev would join in. He had engaged in brinksmanship throughout his presidency, but if he could get a treaty among the world powers, he could add to his legacy of being a peacemaker. But an incident would happen that would destroy those hopes. For years, Eisenhower had approved aerial spy missions over the Soviet Union. U-2 spy planes were flying high above the Soviet Union, where the CIA promised they would not be shot down by Russian defenses. These missions gave America intelligence on Russian military capabilities and readiness. This all related back to Eisenhower's fears about defense spending. 
Those who advocated for increased spending would claim that the Soviets were way ahead of the United States in military capability, especially in terms of bombers. If Eisenhower could get intelligence that proved America was way ahead, he could ward off those who wanted more spending. That's why he approved the U-2 flights. The intelligence gleaned from the flights did confirm his hunch that America was way ahead in terms of bombers. The Russians knew that these flights were happening and knew that the United States had information about their capabilities. But they didn't want to publicize their knowledge of the flights because it would expose a weakness, the inability to prevent Americans from spying right in their airspace. The entire program was a secret to the world. Eisenhower knew that the flights were a huge risk. Sending spy planes over enemy territory was dangerous. They could be shot down, no matter how confident the CIA was. If America was ever caught, it would be an embarrassment, since many felt flying over enemy airspace without the consent of that country was unsavory. And if a plane ever got shot down, it would allow the Soviets to claim it could counter American technology. Due to their sensitive nature, Eisenhower personally approved each flight after a thorough review. One of those missions took off on May 1, 1960. It was flown by pilot Francis Gary Powers, but Powers never returned from the mission. The Eisenhower administration assumed that the plane had crashed and that Powers was dead. To account for the loss, the administration released the cover story that it was a weather plane and that it had oxygen issues. This would lead the public to believe that the pilot had blacked out and accidentally entered Soviet airspace. Unbeknownst to the administration, the Soviets actually had Powers alive in custody and had obtained film from the plane confirming its reconnaissance mission. The plane had been shot down by Soviet defenses. It's possible Khrushchev held all this information back so that the United States would release its cover story and then be caught red-handed. While he was once afraid to disclose Soviet vulnerability, now he savored the chance to humiliate the Americans. Shooting down the plane would show off the Soviets' defensive capabilities and expose a sensitive American secret. Khrushchev hoped that this would increase his leverage with Eisenhower during the impending summit. Well, after the weather plane story was released, Khrushchev announced on May 5, 1960, that the U.S. plane had been shot down. The Americans denied it, believing that the plane was destroyed and the pilot was dead, but that was a fatal assumption. Two days later, Khrushchev finally announced that the Soviets had the pilot alive and well, and the film from the plane. One can only imagine the look on Eisenhower's face when he found out. Let's just say that the CIA was not on his good side after this. One aide recounted that around this time, the president said, quote, I would like to resign. It was a huge embarrassment. The entire incident had blown the lid off one of the most intensely kept secrets of his administration. It exposed an unseemly side of America's national security policies. Critics argued that America was willfully violating the Soviet Union's sovereignty. Also, the entire incident called into question America's capabilities since one of its planes had been shot down. Khrushchev also demanded for an apology. Eisenhower could no longer deny that it had happened. He wisely decided to level with the American people, to come clean and admit that it was indeed a spy plane. He argued that the Cold War and Soviet secrecy made missions like these involving the U-2 necessary for the country's security. 
and he said, quote, No one wants another Pearl Harbor. This means that we must have knowledge of military forces and preparations around the world, especially those capable of massive surprise attack. Secrecy in the Soviet Union makes this essential. In the Soviet Union, there's a fetish of secrecy and concealment. Eisenhower also cited the long history of Soviet spying in the United States. The president maintained that he simply would not apologize. Within days, the summit in Paris began. Khrushchev sat across the table from the Americans, British, and French. He called again and again for an apology, but Eisenhower refused again and again. The president could count on strong support from his British and French allies, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan and Charles de Gaulle. Ultimately, the entire summit collapsed and little was accomplished. Eisenhower left Paris embittered, knowing that his hopes for a test ban treaty were dead. He wrote of Khrushchev that, quote, I leave Paris with, of course, a measure of disappointment because our hopes for taking even a small step toward peace have been dashed by the intransigence and arrogance of one individual. While all of this was going on, the 1960 election was in full swing. Richard Nixon had been a loyal vice president throughout the two terms. He easily got the Republican nomination to succeed Eisenhower. By then, Eisenhower was 69 years old, the oldest man to ever be president, and Nixon was just 47. Not to be outdone, the Democrats nominated the 43-year-old senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. I've been talking about the image of Eisenhower as a passive do-nothing president. Well, JFK would make that image an issue in the campaign. He accused the Eisenhower administration, and by association Vice President Nixon, of standing still during the 1950s. He cited the Soviets' accomplishments in space as a sign that America was lagging behind. He also claimed that there was a missile gap, that we were being outmatched in nuclear and conventional capabilities. And he argued that Eisenhower had allowed the communists to get a foothold in Cuba. As you can imagine, Eisenhower took these criticisms to heart. He knew that if there was a missile gap, it was in America's favor, since it was far ahead of Soviet military capability, especially with nuclear weapons. From Eisenhower's perspective, Kennedy had either gotten bad information or was lying. In fact, under Eisenhower, America's nuclear arsenal went from about 1,000 atomic bombs to about 20,000 total nuclear weapons. And he felt, for the New Look policy, that trying to outmatch the Soviets everywhere was foolish. And he felt that Kennedy was in over his head, that he had some real nerve as an inexperienced junior senator, claiming that he could do Eisenhower's job better than him. Eisenhower said, quote, I'll do anything to avoid turning over my seat and the country to Kennedy. It really irritated Eisenhower when people said that he was passive about national defense. And he said, quote, The idea of them charging me with not being interested in defense. Damn it. I've spent my whole life being concerned with the defense of our country. Unfortunately for the president, JFK's message was resonating. A new decade was coming, the 1960s, and Americans were starting to crave energetic leadership. And John F. Kennedy exuded energy and youthful vigor. Let me say first that I accept the nomination of the Democratic Party. 
I accept it without reservation and with only one obligation, the obligation to devote every effort of my mind and spirit to lead our party back to victory and our nation to greatness. Kennedy's charge that the nation was lying at anchor and drift was a clear criticism, not just of Nixon, but of Eisenhower. Also, it didn't help that Eisenhower unwittingly damaged his chosen candidate's chances. Nixon was largely running on his experience as vice president and his participation in the administration. But when one journalist asked Eisenhower if he had adopted any of Nixon's ideas, he said, quote, If you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. The Kennedy campaign gleefully reminded everyone that Eisenhower seemed to be admitting that Nixon didn't play as big of a role in the administration as he was claiming. That November, JFK defeated Richard Nixon in one of the closest elections in American history. Kennedy would become the 35th president of the United States. Remember when I said second terms are usually rough? Well, it was the same for Eisenhower. Yes, he had had his successes, like in Lebanon. Yes, he had gotten Mao to back down once again in the Taiwan Strait. But the perception that he had been asleep at the wheel, which allowed the Soviets to take the lead in the space race, persisted. And the entire U-2 episode dashed any hopes for a legacy-making peace treaty. And it seemed that with Kennedy's election, the American people were endorsing his view that the country had been standing still. To Eisenhower's critics, his presidency was eight years of drift. After years of holding down the defense budget, preventing what he felt could be national bankruptcy, and getting bogged down in foreign wars, Eisenhower feared that a Kennedy presidency would be a disaster. Kennedy was ambitious, and he opposed massive retaliation in favor of flexible response, which Eisenhower felt might lead to more wars. He lamented, quote, all I've been trying to do for eight years has gone down the drain. But Eisenhower worried about something else. He still believed very much in his policies, especially New Look. He believed that it had kept the peace and allowed for unprecedented prosperity. But he saw that Americans might be abandoning it. He feared that abandoning New Look meant America would turn to deficit spending, he still feared that America would bankrupt itself trying to outmatch the Soviets. He saw the outcry and the call for massive spending after the Soviets launched Sputnik. He also feared that relying less on nuclear weapons would make war more, not less likely. He worried that the new and more popular flexible response doctrine would tempt American policymakers to use force, especially since the new president-elect was a supporter of the doctrine. Eisenhower knew that the Cold War meant that things had changed. America couldn't demobilize as it had in years past. But he also worried about what that meant. He worried about the impact government defense spending would have on American society. As he said in his famous speech years earlier, he believed that defense spending had an opportunity cost, that it robbed from American productivity and innovation. Eisenhower crafted his farewell address with all of this in mind. It ranks among the most famous by a modern president in history, and is perhaps the most famous farewell address after George Washington's. It was delivered on January 17, 1961, three days before he stepped down from office. The major theme here is balance. Eisenhower 
knew that in America, in the Cold War, he had to walk a fine line in many ways. He had to maintain fearsome weapons of war in order to preserve the peace. He had been willing to go to the brink of nuclear war, but also was willing to sit down with America's enemies to reduce tensions. The United States had to spend much on weapons, but not too much or else we would bankrupt ourselves. It had to maintain a healthy concern for Soviet expansion and progress without being alarmist. Eisenhower addressed this need for balance in his farewell address. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses. Development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture. A dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped-for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. To Eisenhower, maintaining this balance would be critical for the viability of our massive defense effort. But there was more at stake. It wasn't just about spending. Costs weren't limited to just dollars and cents. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. 
the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now, when it comes to Eisenhower's farewell address, the one thing everyone likes to mention is his warning of the military-industrial complex. It's become the most memorable part of the address, especially when you consider it came from a man who spent the bulk of his career in the military and who was responsible for the increase in nuclear weapons. But that's the surface-level message. It's only a policy prescription. There's a deeper underlying principle there. Eisenhower was pointing us to the military-industrial complex because he felt it was a double-edged sword. On one hand, we needed it because, he said, we could no longer risk emergency improvisation. We needed to be able to use massive military power on a moment's notice. It was a necessary evil. But he warned us that this necessity also had potentially harmful consequences. Not only was it expensive, but also, in his words, it, quote, could endanger our liberties or democratic processes. The militarization of our government was now affecting all aspects of our society, quote, economic, political, even spiritual. That militarization could have the effect of fundamentally altering the makeup of our country. We were a nation dedicated to individual liberty, but the militarization of society could mean that we could lose that sense of liberty and individuality. It could lead to top-down control of society. We were facing a dangerous enemy, the Soviet Union. They ran a society that also dedicated massive amounts of their treasury toward nuclear weapons. But their ideology called for top-down control and the subordination of individual liberty to the idea of a dictatorship of the masses. The United States was opposed to this, but in opposing it, it ran the risk of becoming like it. In essence, Eisenhower was warning us, don't become what you oppose while in the process of opposing it. Don't lose sight of your values while trying to uphold them. The fact that Eisenhower, a military man, was able to see the dangers that his own institution posed speaks to his sense of balance and judgment. John Lewis Gaddis, one of the great Cold War historians, sums up Eisenhower's advice as follows, Containment must not destroy what it was attempting to defend. Eisenhower's concern was that, in the effort to contain an authoritarian adversary, the United States itself might become authoritarian, whether through the imposition of a command economy or through the abridgment of democratic procedures. We remember Eisenhower's specific policy prescription to beware the military-industrial complex. But if we really want to understand his message, we must look deeper into the actual principle. His warning not to destroy what we were defending resonates not just in the Cold War context, but in all of the foreign policy challenges our nation faces today. Although Eisenhower lamented the ups and downs of his second term, he remained immensely popular and respected. He retired to a farm with Mamie in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. 
he continued to remain engaged in public service, and his successors John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson reached out to him to solicit his advice. Kennedy had a fascinating conversation with President Eisenhower during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the gravest crisis during the Cold War. Kennedy called Eisenhower for his advice. He was concerned about how the Soviets would respond to American actions, say if Kennedy ordered an attack on the Soviet missiles in Cuba. He feared that it would lead to a retaliation in Berlin, or perhaps a direct nuclear strike. He heard from men like Truman's Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, that the Soviets would back down. But Kennedy couldn't quite believe that he knew for sure what the Soviets would do. To say that the Soviets wouldn't respond, it just seemed like an easy thing to say when you were on the sidelines if you weren't the one making the decision. He felt that miscalculation, or an unintentional escalation of hostilities, was a very real possibility. Maybe Eisenhower, the great general of World War II, could shed more light on that possibility. As I say, uh, we will, uh, I don't know, we may get into the invasion business before many days are out. But, uh, of course, in those days, well, that's a clean-cut thing to do now. That's right. Because that's right. You, you've made up your mind, you've got to get rid of this. Right. Well, right. The only real way to get rid of it, of course, is the other thing. But if, having to be concerned with world opinion and... Uh, and Berlin. Well, Berlin is the, uh, I suppose, uh, that it may be the what they're going to try well, to trade off. might, but I, 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 personally, I just don't quite go along, you know, with that uh, thinking. My idea is this. The damn Soviets will do whatever they want, what they uh, think is good for them. Yeah. And I don't believe they relate one situation with another. Uh, That's right. what they find out they can do here and there and the other place. Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're already standing at uh, the unit with NATO that if they go into Berlin, that's all of it. Right. That means uh, they've got to to look out that they don't get a, a terrific uh, blow themselves. Right, right. And I, 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 I don't, it might be, I could be all wrong, but my own conviction is that you will not find a great deal of relationship. Instead, Eisenhower seemed pretty confident that the Soviets wouldn't try to make any moves elsewhere in response to Kennedy's actions. But Kennedy then went straight to the point. He asked if the Soviets were willing to risk nuclear war if Kennedy attacked Cuba. General, what about if the Soviet Union uh, Khrushchev announces uh, tomorrow, which I think he will, that if we attack Cuba that uh, it's going to be nuclear war? Uh, and uh, what's your judgment as to uh, the chances they'll fire these things off if we invade Cuba? Oh, uh, I don't believe that. You don't think they will? In other words, you would take that risk if the situation seems desirable. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, what can you do? Uh-huh. Uh, you, if this thing is such a uh, serious thing uh, here on our flank, that uh, we're going to be uneasy, and we know what this thing is happening now. All right. You've got to use something. Right. Something may uh, make these people shoot them off. I just don't believe this will. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and then, of course, I'll say this. I'd want to keep my own people very alert. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hang on tight. Thanks a lot, General. Eisenhower brushed off any fear of nuclear war. You have to love Kennedy's reaction. He just chuckles. It seemed that none of the most experienced men in the country seemed to fear the possibility of nuclear war. And you have to wonder, how much of this was the wily old general giving Kennedy a taste of his own medicine? Remember, 
Kennedy had bashed Eisenhower during the 1960 campaign, implying that he had lost Cuba and that he had allowed the Soviets to get ahead of the United States. Did Eisenhower enjoy telling Kennedy that he had to be tough? Remember, Eisenhower was peeved that Kennedy had said that Eisenhower wasn't being strong on the communists. Now he was telling Kennedy that he had to be willing to face nuclear war directly. Of course, Eisenhower himself was willing to face nuclear war. During his own presidency, he was quite willing to threaten nuclear war and go right up to the brink. But he had also worked very hard to avoid getting involved in any wars. He had threatened nuclear war as a way to deter war. By 1968, Eisenhower's health was failing. That year, he endorsed his former vice president, Richard Nixon, in his second bid for the presidency. He lived to see Nixon elected that fall. By early the following year, his heart was failing, and he spent his last days in Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He died on March 28, 1969, at the age of 78. In a 1962 poll of presidential historians, Dwight D. Eisenhower was named the 21st greatest president out of 31 presidents assessed. In other words, America's historians ranked him as below average. In 2017, another poll among historians ranked Eisenhower as the fifth greatest president, ahead of Thomas Jefferson, Harry Truman, and John F. Kennedy. Now, I'm not a fan of presidential rankings, but they are an indication of something, of historic reputation. These polls lead us to ask, how did Eisenhower's reputation make such a dramatic leap? Well, there are several factors at work. First, Eisenhower was the victim of perception. Some of the same things that made Eisenhower popular, his winning smile, his calm demeanor, made people think that he was nothing more than an old benign leader. But historians who have studied him since acknowledge that he was fully in charge of his presidency, and once he was determined to pursue a course, could not be dissuaded. Many now realize that behind that smile was a cold-blooded strategist. He was, after all, a master poker player. And although the Eisenhower years appeared as years of drift to some, when compared to the years of chaos and ill-conceived military adventures that followed, they seemed to look better and better. As we learn more about Eisenhower, his reputation gets better with age. Second, presidents that serve during one giant identifiable crisis or major event tend to get more attention. Lincoln had the Civil War, and FDR had the Depression and World War II. It's easier to identify those presidents and study the decisions that they made. With Eisenhower, you have a presidency who had a host of smaller crises, although those crises had major implications for world peace. Americans and historians don't just have one major crisis to attribute to him. They have a lot more that they have to remember, like Taiwan, the Suez Canal, Iran, and Mosaday, and Lebanon. This makes it harder to sum him up in simple terms as a great president. It also reveals a bias, I think, in evaluating presidents. There is a certain bias towards presidents who have giant historical accomplishments. One of my friends once said that Eisenhower was just a transitional president. He didn't have the impact that others did, like FDR with Social Security and the New Deal. Well, obviously, how one feels about those policies depends on their political views. 
But I also think that these critics are missing something. Presidents don't get to choose the challenges they have to face. Eisenhower didn't have one huge crisis that allowed him to make his mark the way the Depression gave FDR to implement his New Deal policies. I think that adjusting one's evaluation for context is critical to evaluating presidents. So the question is less, what major thing did he accomplish? And more, how did he handle the challenges that he faced? Throughout his presidency, Eisenhower was faced with multiple crises that risked nuclear war and American credibility. Think of the list. Korea, Taiwan, the Suez Canal, Iran, Guatemala, Vietnam, Lebanon, Hungary, and the U-2 incident. Several times, Eisenhower was willing to go to the brink of nuclear war. There's a fair debate about the risks Eisenhower was willing to take, whether he should have been willing to risk so much. But again, it's hard to argue with the results. Under Eisenhower, America kept the peace and maintained its strategic advantage, just as Eisenhower had intended. He worked hard to maintain stability in the Cold War world, a delicate balance in the age of nuclear missiles. Like few presidents before him, he walked a tightrope, but his emphasis on balance paid off. One of his great achievements was to reduce the budget deficit while protecting America. Eisenhower reduced defense spending as a percentage of total spending from 70% of the total budget in 1954 to 51% in 1961. And yet, according to historian John Lewis Gaddis, quote, these cuts produced no net reduction in American military strength relative to that of the Soviet Union. If anything, the United States was in a stronger position vis-a-vis its major competitor at the end of Eisenhower's term than it was at the beginning. Eisenhower even ended up signing three balanced budgets, a feat not duplicated until the 1990s. Eisenhower was a man who knew what he was doing on the world stage. He remained calm during crises, refrained from overreaction, and he acted decisively when he had to. He succeeded in leveraging unpredictability, intervening in some areas and not intervening in others. He was willing to gamble with the highest stakes, and throughout all that time, he never showed his hand. It still doesn't seem clear whether Eisenhower was really willing to make good on his threats to use the bomb. His son, who served in the White House during his presidency, said, quote, I never knew whether dad would have used nuclear weapons, he would never say. His aides, including General Andrew Goodpaster and his brother Milton, disagree on whether Eisenhower was bluffing. All of this is a sign of a master brinksman. On the whole, it seems that he made the right choices and achieved the outcomes that he had wanted. Although he did maintain America's commitment to Vietnam, his decision to not intervene with ground troops was a wise one, as it gave America a much-needed respite from war. After he ended the Korean War, America only suffered one casualty in combat during the Eisenhower administration, despite facing multiple dangerous confrontations. Meanwhile, he got China to back down over Taiwan twice, while affirming our commitment to Taipei. In Eisenhower's words, quote, The United States never lost a soldier or a foot of ground in my administration. By God, it didn't just happen, I'll tell you that. Of course, he was not perfect. Perhaps he misjudged American reaction to events like Sputnik. 
but he did so with good intentions, remaining even keel in times of panic. Ultimately, as I said before, it's hard to argue with results. Eisenhower set out with the goal of strengthening America for a long-term struggle in the most cost-effective way possible. He felt that the best way was to keep spending low, rely heavily on nuclear weapons, maintain the peace, and give Americans the space they needed to prosper, to build a foundation needed to sustain the effort against the Soviet Union. Eisenhower largely succeeded in these goals. And the American people were better off for it. Unemployment and inflation remained low. Personal income increased by 45%. Americans were buying homes, cars, and TVs. When he handed off power to President Kennedy, the nation was stronger and better prepared to bear the burden as leader of the free world. Dwight D. Eisenhower was more than a transitional figure. He was probably the last president of his kind, a military hero above politics. He was a great American warrior who, having fought history's worst war, dedicated his life to peace. His story reminds us that leadership isn't just about glory. It isn't just about image. It's also about the quiet determination to get things done, regardless of what people think. If you want to learn more about President Eisenhower and the Cold War, check out Eisenhower, The White House Years by Jim Newton, Ike's Bluff by Evan Thomas, The Age of Eisenhower by William Hitchcock, and Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis. In this series, we've covered how Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower managed the delicate balance of nuclear terror during the Cold War. But that great ideological conflict had not yet reached its most dangerous moment. That moment would come during John F. Kennedy's time in the White House. In our upcoming episodes, we will examine how America's youngest elected president struggled to do what his predecessor did so well, go to the brink of nuclear war without falling over the cliff. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. Special thanks to my wife, Tammy, and Joey Brown for their help producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.